podcast in the galaxy. The Easy Yeezy Show. Hi guys and welcome to the Elise Yeezy show. I'm your host Elise Yeezy and today I'm joined by young adult writer, horror writer, Darren Shan. Hey, nice to be on. Thanks for having me. No, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, as I was just saying to Darren a few moments ago, uh, the Darren Shan series was a huge part of my childhood. Uh, turns out it was a big part of a lot of my audience's childhoods as well. So thank you so much for coming on. A pleasure there is before we start there is uh there's one anecdote that i <laughs> that i have to tell you it's a very minor bone i must pick in the first darren shad book in the introduction uh it's first person narrative and you state that this is a true story yeah <laughs> now as a child i had a big imagination so i read that and naturally thought that it was a true story and I thought that it <laughs> I thought I thought it was a real story for a lot longer than I would care to admit. I mean, I got to near the end of the series and I was like, wow, I can't believe all of this stuff is possible. Where's the mountain full of vampires? Like I would try to work out where the story was based so I could find the yeah. Cirque de Freak. A lot, a lot <laughs> of people do that. Um I struggle because there are no place names mentioned in the series. So where Mr. Crepsley's hometown is or where Darren's hometown is. I never mentioned any place names. Oops, sorry, my light's playing. So, yeah. The reason I did that was so that readers, no matter where they live in the world, could imagine it happening in their mm. own hometown. You know, I live in County Limerick, you know, west southwest of Ireland. You know, no stories are ever set here. So whenever I was reading books as a kid, I'd always have to try and imagine what these settings look like. I remember I loved um, Alfred Hitchcock and the Free Investigators, which mm. was set in LA. But you know, I had no idea what LA was like. This was long before the internet or anything. Um, sorry, my light's... Messing me about here, and so um, yeah, I thought by not mentioning place names, it removes that barrier to the story, which I hoped would make it more personal for readers, and it, it definitely did. But as you say, if you get to book twelve, there is an inner logic at work which does explain how it could all be a real story. You know, I'm not a half vampire. You know, I'm just a very ordinary person writing lots of other different books, but there is a logic at work within the series which explains how it could all have happened, and yet how Miss Darren Shan can be here. Uh, writing another book so whenever anyone asked me yeah was it really real of course it was have you had that reaction from quite a few people because I spoke to my friend a fellow youtuber and book critic Rachel Woats and I told her because I've told a few people and they think it's funny they think oh Elise your imagination like you strange child kind of thing but she agreed with me and she said oh I thought it was true as well and she used to tell her classmates the difference between vampires and the vampires most most readers, especially the younger readers, and yeah, it was a series for about you know 10, 11, 12 years upwards. Now I'm it's been an unusual series. It appeals to older readers as well. Mm. Um, in the Far East, in Japan in particular, it was read mostly by 18 to 30 year old women. That was the main audience for it when, when the books came out. So oh, obviously wow. they would have had a very different uh, approach to it than a 12 year old in the UK or Ireland or America. But um, yeah, no, no, loads of kids. It, it's part of it. Whenever I'm reading the book, I always like pretend it's real. You immerse yourself into a story. You mm. go on these journeys, and of course you know it's not, but you have to suspend... I always suspend my sense of disbelief when I'm reading or when I'm watching a movie. Now, you, you enter these worlds. That's the whole point of fiction. You go into this world while you're in it. You, know, you, you might as well believe it's all real. That's the whole point of the story, of becoming part of the story. So, um, yeah, I just felt it was nice to have a story which openly allowed you to do that if you want to. So, yeah, no, I've, I think the vast majority of readers 
what wanted to believe it was true, even if you know, secretly knew it wasn't. They still, in their heart, they wanted Vampire Mountain to be real. They wanted these mm. strangely right-wing vampires, yet lovable, <laughs> to be part of their world. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just funny when I think about it because obviously, for well, not obviously, for me, I always had an interest in the paranormal as a young child, and that's extended into my adult life as well. I still have an interest in the paranormal, UFOs, etc. Um. But on you, did you enjoy horror as a child then? All my life. Um, I always loved fantasticals, whether it was horror, fantasy or sci-fi. I was always into those. But yeah, horror was my first love. I was, I've actually, I know I sound like I've just uh, walked off a council estate in London. Uh, <laughs> I did, but that was like 44 years ago. I was born in London. I lived there until I was six years of age. And since then, I've lived in Ireland, but I never lost my original twang. But even when I was living in London, so I must have been six or younger, I can remember loving horror stories and watching horror films and TV. I remember seeing my first Dracula movie. It was one that was made, I think, in the early 70s. And um, yeah, I remember seeing him crawl across the, the wall of his castle uh, when, he, when he came out of his coffin. I just think this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I, I saw Dracula in 1972 AD, which is one of the, the worst Hammer films. But you know, when I saw it, I was six years of age. It terrified me and I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I always had that love of horror. And um, yeah, people ask me, you know, why do I write horror books? It's just because I love it. I always say to writers, write the sort of stories you would like to read as a reader. And horror has always been my first love. I cross genres all the time, especially in my books for, for adults. But horror was what I was what I tend to come back to because that's what I loved more than anything else. I just love this sensation of being scared, especially as a child into your early, into my early teens, because I was able to believe that it was real. I truly believed there were vampires going around the place. And I can remember when I was still, again, when I was still living in London, I used to go to sleep at night. I'd think about vampires attacking. I'd send myself to sleep <laughs> telling scary stories to myself. And I'd play out different scenarios. You know, sometimes the vampires would come and I'd have a cross next to my bed and I'd frighten them off the cross and I'd save the family. Sometimes I'd think about what it'd be like if, my parents got turned into vampires, but I managed to survive because I had that cross. And then occasionally I'd think about what it, what it might be like if I got turned into a vampire. Mm. And 20 years later, that became the starting point for Cert the Freak. So before that happened, when you were a child and you were imagining all these horror scenarios in your head, when did that start to turn into... Uh, I want to write stories because I'm sure like as a young child, you dabbled. I know that Stephen King, he started writing very early on. I remember key memories of Hang a Typewriter and writing really simple stories. When did that start to happen for you? Very, very young. I loved writing stories even at that age of five or six. Again, I can place it. I'm very, very bad actually with remembering when things happened in my life. Hmm. You know, I'll, often some, I'll, be, I'll think something happened you know, two or three years ago and it might be 10 years ago. I'm very bad at keeping um, track of things. But that age of six, because that's when I moved to Ireland, that was a big upheaval in my life. And I can remember a lot of things from around that time. My mother was a primary school teacher. And she, mm -hmm. she was my first teacher when I started in primary school in London uh, for a couple of years. And she realised very early on I had this active imagination. I loved to tell stories. And she encouraged me to channel that into writing. And I can remember, and this does sound like an anecdotal story, but it, it is true. When I was still in school in London, one day I wrote a story in class and the teacher said, oh, that's an excellent story, Darren. As a prize, you can go and read it out in one of the other classes in the school. Which class would you like to go into? And um, I can remember having the thought, my mother was teaching in one of the classes, so it was an obvious choice. 
but there was a girl I was sweet on in a different class. <laughs> I went in to read a story out in there to impress her. <laughs> so, um, yeah, even, even from a very young age, I was uh, I was very much into writing and saw it as my future with, with, with having success with the ladies, which unfortunately, as everyone who knows right will know, it's very much not the case. <laughs> was that young girl not, um, not impressed? I'd like to think she was, but I, I mentioned <laughs> not. I don't think the story was that good. You mentioned moving from London to Ireland. I imagine that's quite um, quite an upheaval because it's still part of Ireland's... Wait, which part of Ireland was it? Sorry, because I'm not very good uh, at geography. No, so no, I'm not... Right. It's um, it's Limerick in the southwest, so next to Kerry and Cork and Galway. It's sort of so surrounded. not part of the UK, is it? No, 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 no. That's um, but very southwest. So. Yeah, so that's quite a big upheaval, I'd imagine. You know, going from London, the centre of England, to Ireland. What was that like as a as a child? Was it was it, it was, worrying it was fun? It, it was. It was. Um, I liked it. Now I'd, I'd grown up in London. I used to come back. We used to come back on the holidays to Ireland, so I knew the area. I had family back here. My grandfather, one of my um, dad's father, so my paternal grandfather, lived back here. Um, and I was young enough that it was all exciting. I think, yeah, if I'd been a few years older, maybe mm. I would have been more nervous. I don't remember being particularly upset. I was upset leaving my grandparents in England. So my mother's grandparents were still living in London. And I had an uncle who was less than four years older than me, my mother's youngest brother. And we were like brothers. And so that was a big wrench. I remember when we were pulled away, I was in the back seat in the car crying. But once we got here, it was all very exciting. And I, I was very much a wild child. I lived on the Haygate Estates in the Elephant Castle in London. So, you know, it's just little small flats and I was, yeah. I'd be bouncing around the walls inside the place. You know, there was no play areas around there, no playgrounds, no sports facilities, anything like that. So I'd just be bouncing around the, the flat. You know, one of the reasons my parents wanted to come back to Ireland was to rear me and my brother in this place where there was open spaces where we could mm -hmm. go out. And I, I, I loved it. I'd be outside the back every day, kicking the ball around our field. You know, we had about an acre of land around us. And yeah, I, I enjoyed the freedom of it. It was a very, very different um, this it, is like late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, there was no children's television. There were no c computer games, anything like that. So it was a bit boring. But um, that encouraged me to read more because there was nothing else to do. So I, I, would, I would read lots of books. But, you know, I enjoyed it. I liked the, um, you know, obviously in life, in life with every, no matter where you end up, there are things you like, things you don't like. But, yeah, no, I, I did like it. It was, um, I think, mate, if, it had been, if I'd been 10, 11, I'm not sure how that difference would have gone down with me. But at six, it was a big adventure. I was able to you know, go outside, ride, race around. Um, you know, I was young enough and made new friends without even thinking about it. So mm. yeah, no, it was, um, I, don't remember, I don't remember being an upheaval. Okay, that's good. You're young enough that you adjusted quite well to a big move like that. Yeah, it was like, and also it was um, much darker. There were no street lamps. So it was good for feeding my horror-obsessed imagination. <laughs> so... From being obsessed to horror to writing as a child, what led you to ultimately becoming an author? When did that start to happen? Because you you always you set out to be an author, didn't you? Um, yes, uh, I, I, I loved. I, I did love writing when I was five or six, seven and eight. But mm -hmm. I also loved singing and playing football. So I, I loved animals. So you know, in my mind, I'd play all sorts of careers. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, I remember I was saving up at one point to be the six million dollar man which was a TV series in the, the 70s. Lee Majors was, was an American actor um, and he had bionic implants. Uh, mm. yeah, I wanted to be a, a, 
a rock star. I wanted to be a footballer. As I sort of went through my childhood into my teens, you know, these other dreams fell by the wayside. You know, I realised I wasn't that good at football. I wasn't that good at singing. Um, I was never going to go up into space. But I was good at writing and I enjoyed writing. And that became, by the time I was certainly 12 or 13, that was definitely what I was going to do in my life. That was why I was just completely focused on becoming a writer. Um, it, might be, it might even have been a bit earlier than that, but certainly by the time I was 12 or 13, I wasn't entertaining any other careers, which um, drove my mother and my father mad. You know, she was, she's unleashed the genie in feeding me that love of stories. You know, she was always mm. saying, quite rightly, you know, most writers don't make any money from writing, so you should have a backup career. Mm. But I didn't want backups. I was just full of the arrogance of, teen, of a you know, teenage boy, and I was going to be a very successful author, Oh, this is what I was going to do. Now, by my late teens, I realised my, my mother was right. And, you know, I, my sort of goal was to make minimum wage. If I could afford to write full time, I would have been delighted. The most excited I've ever been, despite all the huge success that came later on, was when we sold the rights to Certain Freak. I write for adults as well. And my agent had sold the rights to my first book a year, a year earlier. Like, you know, very, very small rights. I was still living with my parents, drawing the dull. I couldn't afford to come off the dull. But when he sold Certain Freak, even though that was still a small advance, with the amount I got for the other book, it meant for this year at least, I would be able to come off the dole and I could actually afford to be a full-time writer, even if just for a year. And I, I, it was my only punched the air moment. You, know, you always see in movies when people get these moments, they go, yes! That's the only time I've done that in, you know, in a room by <laughs> myself. When I got that letter, I didn't have a computer, so um, was, we used to communicate by letter in the late 90s my, when my agent first took me on. So it was mm. about a week after he'd actually agreed the deal, I got a letter saying, we've sold the rights to certain freak. I think it was £5,000. So you get 2000 up front and 3000 later. But that was enough for me to be able to come off the dole and be able to say, yes, I am a full-time writer. But um, yeah, yes. Yeah, so by, by the time I was 12, 13, that was definitely what I was going to do in my life. Whether I could make a living out of it or not, I was still going to be doing it. Did you go on to do university and take English am I correct in saying that was or was it English and sociology or so I did English and sociology I actually found sociology um much much more useful than I'd ever imagined the university I went to Roehampton you had to do two subjects and I'd had a few different ones in the mix philosophy psychology uh, I didn't really know anything about sociology but I, I really loved it and it's, it really really fed into my writing I think one of the reasons the vampires in my books structured to court with people is they seem very very realistic and I got a lot of that from sociology from you know sociology you look at how groups work and how they function so when I came to develop my vampires I was I wasn't really thinking about traditional vampires from the movies mm -hmm. and the books that was at the start yes but by the time I got to book four I realized I wanted to do something very very different with vampires and I took a sociological approach I thought okay you've got a group of humans they have to drink blood to survive they live for a very long time, they're much stronger and faster than normal humans, and they can only come out at night. How would their lives actually be? I took a sociologist's approach, you know, what would they live like? What would their interactions with each other be like? And I approached Vampire Mountain Trilogy almost as a sociologist. And I think that really played a very important part in making those books um, resonate with readers as much as they did. So yeah, I did, I did go to university. I wasn't, uh, for me it was, Filling in the time before I could become a writer, if I'm being completely honest. I was I didn't go to university with the idea of getting a career. 
and making money at the end of it. Back in those days, university was free. So I was able to, yeah. my grandparents still lived in London. So I was able to stay with them for free, able to go to university for free. So for me, it was a, a three-year course that would allow me to put off the point of having to face the real world as a writer who probably wasn't going to make any money for quite a long time. That's interesting that you took a sociological approach to constructing your vampire society because I did notice I was also, let's see, I reread the trilogy, the Darren Shan trilogy this weekend, the first one, and then I was rereading The Lars and Krepsley, um, the, the first book in the series. And as I was reading, all these names and these memories uh, associated with the series were rushing back and I was remembering just how rich the history of the vampires within the Darren Shan saga does seem so it's very interesting that you took a sociological approach to it it feels a bit like i guess akin to um tolkien's elves were very realistic because he was a linguist so when he wrote the language he he knew how to construct language and it feels like there's similarities there i was, I was very impressed with it actually um that's, that's a it that's was, a very good approach to take i think i remember it was i was a bit unsure when i, when I wrote book four so you had the first three books, each one could stand by itself and they were very fast paced and the plot was really sort of four. And then when we got to the fourth book of the series, the plot sort of slowed down and it was more about world building, getting to know these vampires, uh, get, being introduced to them. And I, I wasn't sure, you know, would readers go for it? Was I taking it too slow? Would they want more plot crammed in there? So it was, it was a bit of a risk. But yeah, I think it's really when everything clicked for the vast majority of readers and that's when they sort of the series really began to take off. Because this world that I created, it, it was a world that people really wanted to escape into because it did seem uh, very, very real. Yeah, which leads me to my next question. When you started writing book one, did you always have in mind that it was going to be a 12-book series? Did you know how it was going to end? Because, again, rereading the first book recently, there's plenty of little hints dropped in the first book. There's even there, there was a sentence where Darren wished that he could go back in time and prevent himself from being a vampire. So did you have the ending planned out at the beginning? Because even in as early as book two, um, Mr. Krepsley mentions Ivana by name, and then later on you find out she's a witch and Desmond Tidy's daughter, etc. Did you plan all of that out? Because it's incredibly impressive <laughs> i'm delighted you you noticed that mention of ivana i often put in these little <laughs> easter eggs and a lot of readers will miss out on them uh no i um i work in a strange way mm -hmm. i will spend at least two or three years working on any one book but i will juggle lots of book around lots of books around over that two or three year period so i wrote the first draft of Cert freak and i've been set aside for a few months and i went and uh, second draft the, the first draft of book two Mm -hmm. Then I came back to the first book and I rewrote it. Then I rewrote book two, wrote the first draft of book three, back to book one, and so on. So the reason I was able to include a mention of Ivana in book two is I'd already written the first draft of book mm -hmm. seven or eight before book two, I'd done my final edit of book two. And so I was able to go back and insert a mention of her. And, you know, um, I often seem more structured, more all-knowing than I am. It's because... Sometimes in my zombie series, I'd actually finished the 12th book before the first book was published. So I was mm -hmm. able to bring in hints of things that happened in you know, book 11 and 12 into the first book or two. But, um, but I, when, I, when I first wrote Certain Freak, it was my first time writing a book for children. I'd always, I'd written lots of books for adults at that point and I'd sold, uh, or was nearly close to selling my, um, my first adult book. And I'd always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to write a book for children. When I was at university in... London, I spent a year studying children's literature. I, I, I never lost that love of children's books, even as I went from my teens into my 20s. 
I was reading prim primarily uh, books written for adults. I would always mix them up with books for younger uh, younger readers. I just always have this fascination with books. So um, I had an idea for Cert Freak one day. I literally, I was sitting in a car. I was um, minding a young cousin of mine who was asleep in back seat. And um, I hadn't brought a book with me to read. So I looked around the car, I found a copy of Goosebumps. Now I was aware of Goosebumps from the TV show, but I'd never read them. They weren't around when I was growing up. So mm -hmm. I flicked through and I read a few chapters. And I noticed two things. One, I would definitely have, would have loved Goosebumps when I was you know, eight, nine, 10 years of age. But two, they were much safer and less horrific than the type of horror books I really would have wanted to read when I was 10 or 11. And so I had this idea, what, what I would have really loved was a book that was as easy to read as Goosebumps and that had been written with younger readers in mind, but which had all the darkness of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And then I had this idea, still in the seat of the car, of a boy who meets a vampire at a circus and reluctantly ends up having become his assistant. And about two or three days later, I started writing the book. And I was writing it uh, in the evenings. So I'd write, you know, seven or eight pages of an adult book in the mornings. And then you know, by about four or five in the afternoon, I'd do four or five pages of this book for children. I had no idea if I'd better get it published. I had no idea if, if writing for children was something I'd be any good at. But I just felt this was a story I needed to write. And by the time I got to the end of the first book, I knew I wanted to go on and tell more books about this young boy in this world of vampires. But I, I didn't know how many there were going to be. I didn't know where the story was going to go. I wrote the draft, of, first draft of book two. And it was really only when I was planning the first draft of book three that things began to change and my ambitions began to develop. Um, in book three, we first meet the Vampanese, who are, serve as the villains of the series, this purple-skinned breakaway group of vampires. Now, in the, originally, when I was planning the book out in my head, it was going to be an, this evil vampire who was killing people in the books. But then I thought... That, yeah, we've seen that done so many times, evil vampires. Yeah, I don't really want to go down that road. And then the sociologist in me thought, why do vampires have such a bad reputation? In my books, they don't kill people. They are very mysterious, they're very secretive. They, most people never even see vampires. Even if they feed from you, they normally do it when you're asleep. You don't know you've been fed from. So I thought, why do people have such a negative opinion of vampires? And I had this idea of a breakaway group of vampires, who I called Vampanese. And my thinking was over the centuries, people have mixed them up with vampires. And that was where these villains came from. And once I had the idea of Vampanese in place, other things began to fall into place then. I, I began to see where the overall storyline was drawing me. And mm -hmm. from that point on, I knew where, where I was, um, what, what I was putting myself in for. And I actually thought originally, it was gonna be more than 20 books. Um, the 12 books we have, were gonna serve as the first half of this very, very long series. And the second half was gonna take place in the future. In book 10 of the series, we get to see this future world. And um, I was going to set the second half of the storyline in that future world. Mm -hmm. But um, by the time I got to book 11, I still have a plan in place, but I began to realise more than anything else, this was a coming of age story. Mm -hmm. And the reason these books were working as well as they, I felt they were working, they hadn't been released yet, so I wasn't sure, but my gut feeling was I was onto something really special with this series, was that it was a coming of age story. And we followed Darren as he went through this very, very traumatic teenage journey to adulthood. But by the time he got to book 12, he had completed that journey. Mm -hmm. And I did actually write the first book of what would have been the second half of the series, but the, the voice was all different. It was a different tone. It, it didn't really gel with the Darren of the first half. And I realised, because of the way it was structured, I realised I could end at that point. The ending I would have had in mind for the very end of the series actually worked at that point as well. And so I rejigged things round. I rewrote book 11. 
and um, yeah, it ended up being um, that four trilogies, which is the perfect was the perfect structure for it. So, um, but yeah, so but at that point, I knew it was going to be a big journey. I always found it quite sad that Darren never got to become a fully fledged vampire and flit and all of that kind of stuff. I always found that quite. But I always find that sad when someone doesn't get to experience maybe uh, like like the later stage of life like that's a personal thing that I find a little bit sad um so that was a very deliberate decision then he never it's a coming of age story but he never quite gets to to put a full way yeah so I think adult life is boring <laughs> adult life you've got to pay the bills you've got I remember being in school once and um I was talking to teen I think it was in America I was talking to teenagers about how you know as you get older you just become a more boring sort of person and you sort of you know you've got to you know your, your things change and your priorities change. And they were horrified when I said, yeah, how will I know when this is happening to me? I said, listen, when you find stuff in a shop, looking at different types of toasters, you know, <laughs> you know, nobody cares about toast. Toast just makes toast. There's no reason why you should think twice about buying a toaster. You should get the first one that's nearest to you. But you go to adulthood and it becomes, yeah, your, your mind changes. It's good. You can't be children forever. Um, mm. It would be no sort of, you know, life is a journey. And got to take the boring parts of the journey with the good parts like you've got a big long train journey a lot of train journeys it's very very boring most of it when you get to somewhere exciting and you get to experience that excitement so yeah, you can't live in hyper in hyper excitement all the time as you do when you're a child and teenager so and, yeah, there are ups and downs to it but in terms of, of storytelling yeah it's a definitely a less exciting uh, milieu in the adult world i find that's right for adults I, I enjoy writing for adults as well but uh yeah i love that Nothing is possible. Freedom of children books, mm. where you know when you're going for your childhood and your teens, you know you can do anything. I always say to you know to, when I go to schools, uh, when I'm touring, you know you can do anything you want in life. You can try to do anything you want. You might not always succeed. You might not get to where you want to get. You might find you're going somewhere completely different. But you should never limit your ambitions. You know, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a globally best-selling author. By the time I was an adult, I thought that's never going to happen. You know, let's be realistic here. Let's try and make minimum wage. Suddenly, I'm a overly best-selling author. Yeah, <laughs> the dream did come true. But um, so yeah, ha hold on to those ambitions. Feed those ambitions. Mm. It, it pays to listen to your parents when they tell you you probably should need a second career as well. Yeah, you know, I, I love that young me just went hell for leather for it. Yeah, you know, I was I was living with my parents. I was drawing the doll. And I was clinging to that dream and chasing that dream. If it hadn't worked out, I'd have been this tragic loser. It worked out, and I'm a little bit Sometimes I'm, I think I think I'm a, a natural gambler, and all or nothing for me, which is a yeah. good way to be. Because if you get nothing, it's um life isn't so enjoyable. But uh, as a child, yeah, and as a teenager, yeah, think think you can get anything out of this world that you can. So, what does your creative process look like? This is a very popular kind of genre on the internet finding out a uh, writer's daily routines. Very popular genre. What does it look like? In a day-to-day -day basis for you, what's your routine? Last several years, not much. Um, I had I've had two children. I started late in life, so I've mm -hmm. got an eight-year-old son and a, a nearly four-year-old daughter, and so I haven't really been working as uh, beaverishly as I was for the twenty-five years prior to their coming along. I'm sort of it's, it's a real career break, but it's sort of a career slowdown. I've sort of I've stopped touring. Um, I haven't been publishing as much as I normally would do. I was averaging three books a year. For a very very long time, and uh, and I'm going out on the road, support all those books, and you know going all around places. That's brilliant. You know, I'd 
16, 15, 16 years of just you know, living this amazing dream. And um, then when the kids came along, I thought, okay, I'm going to sort of slow things down, spend time with them. And um, so, yeah, so my, my routines are varied now. The way it used to work for, um, yeah, for about, I started writing full time when I was 20, 20, 23. Yeah, I was 23 when I became a full time writer. So up until my sort of mid 40s, so right over 20 years, um, I would write 10 pages. When I was in the first draft of the book, I'd write 10 pages a day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd write very quickly. I can do that's about 3,000 words. And that was, I, I'd, only, I'd do that about three or four hours. And um, I always felt four hours was enough working time in any given day. I was always a bit lazy, even though I'm really industrious as a writer. <laughs> I have a bit of a lazy bones as well. So um, I'd write five books in the morning, I'd spend a couple of hours doing that. I'd have a break. I'd come back, I'd edit those five pages, then write another five. And mm-hmm. the next morning, I'd edit those five, write a new five, and so on. Sometimes I would work on more than two books at the same time. So sometimes I might be doing 15 pages a day. Um, that was rare. I'd also be editing a lot. So sometimes I might do 10 pages of a first draft and spend a few hours editing another book. And yeah, I'd always take the weekends off. I'd keep my weekends free. I'd work Monday to Friday. I, I treated it like a proper job, as if I was going into an office and working for somebody else. And I was very, very strict to myself. It was, you know, for years and years, I would almost never miss my 10 page a day target. I would get that done. That was what I knew I could do. And that's what I set as my goal. I could do more if I wanted, but that was enough. Um, if I did any less than that, I knew I was shirking and I was hard on myself. And I knew if I don't do it today, I've got to do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I, I forced myself to do it. Um, I often like to say, when you write, you work, you're working for yourself. You're your own boss. And you need to be a son of a bitch to work for. You need to be hard on yourself. You have to make yourself do it. If you don't, you end up not doing anything. Because it's very, very easy as a writer to make excuses and to say, oh, this story isn't going the way I want it to go. I'm going to take some time off, set it aside, and wait for my muse to come and lead me in the right direction. And that's a very, very dangerous game to play. I always would write my way through problems. Very often a story wouldn't be working. I'd keep writing it. I'd get to the end. That's when I'd go back and look at where the problems lay and work out how to fix those problems. You know, stopping halfway through is very, very dangerous because, you know, you, you end up maybe maybe not return to, to the story. Um, you're always better to keep going. I always like to write quickly, get to the end. And then, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to go for a book at least six or seven times before I'm happy with it. So I leave the quality control until I get to the editing stage. That's when I look to fix things. Um, when I'm approaching the first draft, my only goal is to get to the end, get it all done on paper. And sometimes I have far more than I need. Sometimes I have less than I need and I need to write more. But if you get it all down, get the structure in place, let the characters develop, see what you've got. And that's why I like as well to leave those gaps in between the editing process. As I was saying earlier, when I finish the first draft, I like to leave it alone for at least a few months. Sometimes I can leave a book for a couple of years or even longer. There are some books I've published recently uh, for adults under my pseudonym of Darren Dash which I wrote first drafts of those you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm only now going back to them and rewriting them and editing them. So I like, with those big gaps, I find it allows me to be more, some, more objective about the story. I can treat it as if somebody else has written it and I can look at it more clinically and see what, is, what isn't working. It's great to see the things that are working, but the real key to writing is spotting what isn't working and finding ways to fix that. But I felt like to do that at a, at a first draft stage. I like to leave that for the editing process. How do you turn off that inner critic, inner editor? Because 
my biggest problem and why I don't write nearly as much as I should is it's all well and good if I if I know what I want to do and I've set out to do it and you know I'm in the you know swig of it stream of consciousness just going through but then when I have to go back to edit I have that feeling of oh my god this is and I know that everyone who writes feels like this but I can't get over that feeling of this is diabolical this is actually embarrassing that I've written this how do I um so what helps you do you just have to turn off the critic because I'm a very self-critical person as it is so <laughs> oh, oh yeah you, you've got to be it's, it's, it's an odd balance you've got to be your strong harshest critic because you know, if you don't pick up on flaws other people are going to pick them up when you publish them but you've also got to be a cheerleader you've got to when I come back to people I go wow look what you've created even if it's rubbish I've created it I've got it here now it's a story it exists so look, I'm working on a book at the moment it's a science fiction um story it's a sort of small one I don't think I don't know we'll see what, what it's like when it comes out but um, there's a lot I'm, I'm having to do a lot of rewriting of it there's lots of things I'm tweaking pretty much every single line I'm having to rework or junk and put a new one in but still as flawed as it was, it's there. It exists. And I always look back on things I've done in the past with pride because I've, I've made this happen. It's very, very easy to dream up a great story and never write it. You know, every story in your head is the best story that's ever been told. We're all James Joyce and William Shakespeare when we're not actually writing. When you sit down to write, we more often tend to be, you know, Barbara Cartland and Jeffrey Archer when it comes to the reality of it. But getting it, you know, having the guts to do that writing of getting the things out of your head, putting them out there for other people to look at. That's a huge step. And um, every writer should be proud of themselves if they get to that stage and if they put their work out there and they put it on the line and they open themselves up to criticism. So, no, I'm always, even if a story isn't working the way I wanted it to do, I can fix it. You can always go back and rewrite and fix it. And I work at it to a point where I know it's as good as that story can be. And we've got the story as good as it can be, put it out in the world and move on and do something else. I've got two aims in my life, two books I, I want to, two things I want to do with my books. I want to write a book that sells more copies than the Bible. And I want to write a book that's better received than James Joyce's Ulysses. Now, I'm not going to do those two things, but that's the goal. And yeah. while I'm waiting for those for miracle books to come along, I'll put out, and I'll be delighted with every other book I can do before that. Be proud and delighted with what you can do. Want to do better? Sure. But never hold yourself to this too high a standard. Because, you know, everyone, I'm, I'm sure William Shakespeare looked back on his lots of his plays and went, oh, God, what was I thinking? What was I doing? <laughs> but you put them out there, and, and, and sometimes you don't know. Sometimes books will surprise you. Um, you know, Certain Freak is my big, big book. That's the book which has, you know, taken my name all around the world. It's been my biggest seller over the last 20 years. But, you know, I didn't know about time. Certa Freak was turned down by 20 publishers in the UK. When I sent Certa Freak to my agent, he got very excited. He said, oh, wow, this is really good. Um, I'm going to mass submit it to 20 agents all at the same time to try and get a bidding war going. But all 20 of those agents said, no, no, didn't want to touch it. It's, it's, oh, wow. it's absolutely, absolutely worthless. Um, my agent, uh, he died a couple of years ago. Um, he, he took me on for my adult books. And he was most, it was mostly adult authors he represented over the course of his career. Uh, when, I went, when I wrote Certain Freak, I wasn't sure if he'd have an interest in it. I um, I, I, remember I, I met him, at, at, I was over for a meeting in London, and I said, Chris, um, I've written a book for children. Do you do you want to have a look at it? I know you don't really do that, but would you like to see it? He said, oh, I said, interestingly enough, I've actually just uh, started working with another author of children's books, um, 
Joanne Rowling. Oh. And then, so he just got a guy with Harry Potter. So this was 19, middle of 1997 when um, Sir Freak came his way. And mm-hmm. so when the 20 rejections came in, yeah, he wasn't sure why so many people, publishers had rejected it. He wasn't sure. Yeah, he didn't know a lot about the children's world. So he set up a few meetings with different editors for us to go and talk to them and see, what didn't you like? You know, if Darren does another book for children, what would you be looking for? And at one of those meetings at Harper Collins with a lady called um, Domenica de Rossa, she read through the book a second time ahead of the meeting just to refresh herself with it. And when she read it a second time, something clicked. And she made a few good suggestions at me. She said, oh, actually, I really like the story. You know, if you, in the first draft, Darren didn't mention his love of spiders until he got to a certain freak. She said, how about Darren, Darren mentions he likes spiders quite early on? And I thought, of course. And so I went back and rewrote it. And she was the person who took, who took me on. Uh, after Brian writes the book, she went off to, on maternity leave. She had twins and ended up not coming back. And her replacement read this book was as horrified by it by every other editor and tried to sell the rights back to us. But because we oh, had wow. no plan B, we let we no, Chris said, no, no, you bought it, you've got to publish it. They spent it took them two and a half years to publish it. And I wrote the first draft in the middle of 1997. And um, it was January 2000 before they actually put it out. And during that time, you know, a couple of things happened. One, uh, Harry Potter began his rise to become this huge phenomenon. And so obviously my agent became this soothsayer whose opinion publishers started to pay a lot more attention to. And also it began to be passed around in-house. And when some of the other people in the publishing house read it, they got really excited. There was a guy in the sales team called Paul Liverland, who became a really good friend of mine later on. And yeah, he took the first book away, he read it. He came back the next day. He says, brilliant, where's the second book? And so word in-house began to go, actually, maybe we've got something here that people are going to like. Um, when Freak was published, uh, there was they weren't sure what the reaction to it was going to be. There'd never been a book like this as dark, mm. but written for children. And W.H. Smith, when it first came out, refused to stock it. They thought there was going to be a big backlash from teachers and librarians. That's when crazy. But next year, W.H. Smith nominated it for their Book of the Year award. So, which is my very long-winded way of saying, <laughs> um, you just got to go for it in life. You, nobody knows what's going to take off and what's going to sink. If you believe in a story, stick with it, go with it, put your neck on the line. If it gets chopped off, fair enough. Sometimes you might just get crowned as well. <laughs> Why do you think uh, 20 publishers rejected it? Was it because of the darker, like, horror elements because again rereading it yeah there are some dark moments like in book three where Merlo's Merlo's like guts and blood and and such all come out um was it because of that kind of a need it sounds like a bit of a pearl clutchy knee-jerk reaction from but I like horror so you know maybe that's just my bias (laughs) it it was mostly that now ironically certain freak is the only book I've written certainly for children in which no one actually dies I don't kill any characters but still, they found it too grisly. They found it too dark for children and too childish for adults. They just couldn't see where the market was. They were very concerned. You know, for children, uh, especially at the ages of 11 or 12, lots of their books are bought by adults mm-hmm. by their parents or relations. And they were worried that parents and teachers and librarians were going to react to the negative connotations and that there would be this big backlash against it and that they, it, there was going to be people going to say it was not suitable for children, it was too dark, it was going to warp their minds. They were really, really concerned. And this is, this is the era before the internet. You know, I don't think Certain Freak would have been published if we had Twitter and Facebook and Instagram back then, because they would have been even more concerned about what the reaction yeah. would be. They just couldn't see that there was a market. They didn't, 
I remember one of those meetings I went to with my agent. Um, the editor, we, one of the editors we spoke with, I won't say what house that was at. Uh, she said to us, look, boys don't read books, so we don't publish books for boys. And that was it. Um, their, their, their thinking was, children don't read horror, so we're not going to publish horror books for children. It was just this very strange mindset that they just want to go with what they knew, what was safe, what was guaranteed to work. And they were very reluctant to take any any risks. Um, luckily, as I say, we stuck in the door with Search Freak. Mm -hmm. It very, very nearly was never published. I, I often talk about luck, writers needing lucky breaks in life. And it seemed ridiculous to think someone who becomes a best-selling author has ever needed a lucky break. You know, you look at Stephen King or Clive Barker and you think they were always going to succeed. The quality is there. The readership is there. You put the two mm. together, you have success. But yeah, you always need that lucky break. If Certain Freak had never been published, you never got the Saga Darren Shan. You never got the Demon Arter. I'd probably still be living with my parents and packing away at these strange novels for adults that nobody was interested in. And I had a very, very lucky break. Um, mm. And it's bizarre. There are lots of great authors out there who don't get that lucky break. There are authors who aren't so good, whose books sell by the bucket load. Uh, you can't guarantee in life how people are going to react to your work. Mm -hmm. What you can do as a writer is write the very best stories you can produce. And that should always be your goal. Tell the best stories you can. And after that, it is in the lap of the gods. That actually leads on to a question my friend and fellow YouTuber, Rachel Oates, wrote. I'm going to have to paraphrase it a little bit. Um, essentially, she said to me that your books served as escapism from her own life when she was a child. Uh, she'd love to know what you think about parents who try and overly censor what their kids are reading or shelter them excessively. Do you think horror can be good for kids? Yeah. And what do you think of the parents that try and shield children away from it? Because I like personally, again, I was always drawn to horror. I remember at my old house, my mum had this bookshelf and it was full of Stephen King novels and the and the front covers of these novels would always give me nightmares. And yet, you know, as a teenager, I started to read him and I still enjoy him. Um, so what do you think about the parents who do try to overly shelter? Is horror good for kids? Yes, in a nutshell. Uh, it depends on the child. For some children, it isn't. And for mm. some children, it is. A good parent will recognise that in the children and will feed the child accordingly. So my mother ne never had any interest in horror at all. You know, she wouldn't, couldn't understand it, but she knew that I loved it. She could see I had this appetite for it. And she never withheld any horror movies or books from me. I read my first Stephen King book, Salem's Lot, when I was about 10 or 11. I saw the um, the TV, there was a TV adaptation in the 1970s with David Soul. And I saw the second half of that one night and it blew me away. I just thought, wow, it's the most amazing thing ever. It terrified me, but I, I loved it. And then um, a while after I saw a copy of the book in the shop with the, the cover from the TV, the vampire in the TV show. And yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of Stephen King. I had no idea who he was, but... Oh, that's that Salem's Lot book. Can I read it, Mum? Yeah, of course. Here you go. <laughs> Knock yourself out. And uh, yeah, I don't think she she probably shouldn't have bought me Stephen King at <laughs> ten or eleven, and that's which is one of the reasons when I wrote Certain Freak, I wanted to provide that bridge between you know Goosebumps and Stephen King, and that's mm. where I think Certain Freak served really, really nicely. And, and the Demonata, um, they are written with children in mind, but we do have all the gore of of the adult books, all the darkness of them. It's. I always think people who know individual children know those ch children the best. I never like making sweeping general statements. The amount of books I've sold shows that there is a huge demand among children for horror. 
But not every child is going to be into that, just as not every child will like funny books or historical books or fantasy books or action books. Yeah, every reader is different. I think it's important in the adult world in general, so parents, teachers, librarians, publishers, to provide a wide variety of books so that every child can find a book they want to read. I don't believe there are reluctant readers. You know, obviously, we live in a world where all sorts of um, ent entertainments available, TV, movies, video shows, and so on and so on. But reading has never gone out of fashion. Reading still remains. It's a unique form of storytelling because in every other format, you're shown, everybody sees the same thing. You watch a TV show, everybody sees the same characters. You watch a movie, same thing. A video game, the same thing. In a book, every reader brings a story to life in their own way. You know, Mr. Krepsley, I, I put lots of fan art onto my um, uh, website. And there are, there are as many different variations of how Mr. Krepsley looks as there are artists in the, the world of my, of my readers. Because, you know, he can look any way a reader chooses for him to look. You're not tied to a specific image of him for where you are with a movie or a video game or a comic. So you know, there will always be space for books. But I think we have to give readers books they want to read. You know, not just give them books that we read, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when we were children, or books that we think they should be reading because they're going to, you know, be good for them educationally. You know, give them books. That, if they like football, give them football books. Mm -hmm. If they like blood and guts being ripped out of people, give them my books. But yeah, I, I think a good parent and a good teacher librarian as well, they know what any individual reader will gravitate towards and what can excite them and what can get them reading. And um, publishers don't always give them the options that they should have. Um, sometimes they do, Hope, and hopefully uh, they'll continue to do that. But yeah, it's, it's tricky. You know, it's very easy to just recycle another Roald Dahl book or mm. you know, push another David Williams book or push you know, the latest celebrity who's written a children's book than it is to go out and push, you know, something new, something unusual, like certain frequency when it was first released. I did notice uh, when I was rereading the trilogy. Now, obviously, as the book series progresses, Darren matures. And between book two and book three, there's this uh, slight jump in the maturity of how his first person narration sounds and obviously it's deliberately done because it's you know between the third and the first book there's almost like a two years time difference and so I'm just wondering is it difficult to stay in this conscious narrative voice and being mindful of how oh well the character's gone mature I guess akin to Harry Potter J.K. Rowling did the same thing right the first two books are a bit more simple for the younger audience and they mature uh, as the books develop the, the Darren Shan series has 12 books compared to Harry Potter 7 is it difficult to just I, I guess stay mindful. And I ask this because I'm a lazy thinker. I'm a lazy person. So I don't know if I could just consciously be aware of, okay, now they've got to sound like a little bit more mature, et cetera. Well, it was odd in my one because, because it was fantasy aging. So between book one and book 12, it was something like 20 years. I, I can be, it's, it's a reminder, it's, it's, yeah, it was a very long time period. So if Darren was in his 30s by the time he was writing book 12, but physically, he still looked like a teenager. Mm. And so it was finding this voice which suited the character. Yeah, there was no one correct way. You know, someone who's 24 but looks 12, what's their voice going to be like? So he'd be, he'd be learning things the whole time, but at the same time, his brain won't have developed the way it does by the end of, of your teenage years. So mm. it was finding that... Um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed having him... His voice slowly change as we went along. There were little things I put in, again, going back to the Easter egg thing. Um, in the early books, he'd often say... 
Mr. Krepsley and me, so Mr. Krepsley and I, or things like that. And it was a, a grammatical error that in book eight, he went back to school and his teacher called him up and said, hey, why, why are you saying this? It should be, and I. And originally I was going to have lots more of that in there, but I thought it would be too distracting. But there were little things like that, which just showed that he was torn between these worlds of childhood and adulthood. He was in the middle. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastical look at how we are when we're teenagers. You know, when we're going for our teenage years, it's a real change. It's a real time of change for our lives. And we, we move, when I was 14, 15, I was reading, you know, big into Stephen King at that stage and Clive Barker and lots of books for adult readers. But I also love Roald Dahlstam. I love mm -hmm. to go back and read Boy and Danny, the champion of the world and the witches. And um, yeah, I was, we, we, we're caught between those worlds of the child that we're leaving behind and the adult that we're moving into. And um, yeah, for me, it's a fascinating time. It's why I've continued to write books featuring ch uh, children, young adults around that age. Because it's a real time of where you know our worlds are changing completely, and I think yeah, I like doing it. And yeah, for the voice it was it was a bit of a struggle sometimes, but I don't remember it being much of a struggle. It was something that came naturally as mm -hmm. I was going through the journey. It just sort of if it feels my sort of motto is if it feels right, it is right. I cannot do too much research in my books. I don't overthink certain aspects of them. Um, there's things I just know if it's if it's right. But the way Mr. Prepsy spoke in the books, he uses no conjunctions. It's I am instead of I'm, is not instead of isn't. And uh, it wasn't something I thought about a lot at the time. It just, that just felt like the right way for him to speak. And so I went with it just sort of because uh, it was a gut instinct telling me this is the way he sounds. That actually, that came up in one of my followers' questions, a commenter with the username Witchfires. They did say, uh, that this is a cheeky question coming from a place of love. In one of the later books of the series, there's a part where Darren learns it should be name and I rather than name and me. Was that planned? Did he learn it? Or was it slipped to retcon a grammar mistake? And I wondered about that too, because I very distinctly remembered reading that as a child. And to be honest, I've noticed a lot of adults will say name and me instead of name and I. And I've always sort of kept that in, that's ticked over in my head as a grammatical lesson. So was that up. done on... Was it done on purpose? It, it was. I'm very, very honest. I'm, you know, every writer makes mistakes. Um, I always hold my hands up when I make mistakes. But the infamous one I remember reading about when I was at university is um, Robinson Crusoe. There's a scene early in the book when he's been, when the shipwreck is still out in the ocean and he strips off naked and he swims out to the shipwreck and then he fills his pockets with stuff before he swims back in. Obviously, he's got no pockets because he's naked. <laughs> and that, that stayed in there. They've never corrected that. Uh, I will always, yeah, I, if I, if a reader points out a mistake to me, I will usually correct it and I'll hold up my hands. There's a scene in Certain Freak, I think it might even be the first book, where um, I say, I was telling my son about this actually just yesterday, can't remember why, but um, I meant to say a character covered her eyes with her hands, but instead I said covered her hands with her eyes. And it slipped <laughs> through, my editor didn't spot it, it got published, and then when, when it got pointed out to us, I went back and corrected it, and I said on the website, oh, yep, sorry, I made a mistake. You know, I, I never worry about only my hands up to mistakes um the grammatical errors were planned and as i said there were going to be more of them to make it more obvious but then i thought that's going to distract readers and it's going to be it'll get a bit too gimmicky if i put loads of errors in but um, i just kept a couple like that but yeah that, that was I, there's a lot of planning goes into books um yeah, there are things I, I overthink sometimes there are things like you know little easter eggs i put in which maybe nobody ever picks up on but um yeah that, that was one of the things that i did think through i'm very sure 
I'm I'm very sure, but I've not read the first in the Demonata Lord Lost for a long time. But I'm very sure when Mira Flame is first introduced, she has like she takes off the helmet and she's got like tumbling blonde hair. And then in a later book, I'm very sure that her hair turns red. And I always I've I've got a keen sort of eye for that type of thing. I felt like have you ever seen that episode of The Simpsons where all the nerds are at the convention and, and they're talking about how you made that you said this thing in episode 25, but then you made this mistake in episode 30. I hope someone gets fired for that blunder. Um, I wonder if I wonder if that's still the case. I'm going to have to go back and read Lord Lost and see. Women dye their hair all the time. That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> I think actually, I think that might have been an error. I think so. I, I don't remember it well, but I remember that being coming up at some point in the distant past of, I don't know. We we might have fixed it. Even I'm not sure if we did. If it's a big mm. error, I'll I'll normally correct it. Sometimes I won't. I'll leave it. I'll leave it as it is. Oh yeah, I've just got one of those minds where I can pick up on things because on my main channel, um, I'll go through books like Twilight, and you know, I've just got a really good brain for picking apart certain things or whatnot. Um, always try and make it. I, I, I don't like those little errors. So I do. Cause what I find with those little errors is they can take people out of the story. So like you say, if you're reading that and the character's hair changes colour, then you're suddenly, you lose that, that reality of the story. Instead of being in the middle of the story and just thinking about his character, you're thinking, hang on, the author's made a mistake there. And that makes you think about the author. And then you're sort of stepping it back from it. And that's never good. So that's why I try, you know, I always, that's why I normally do fix them if they're pointed out to me for future readers to so try and correct it. It's amazing what doesn't get picked up on. Sometimes mistakes will go in there and nobody picks up on them like for years and years. And the weirdest one I ever got, I was that it was to do with my Demonata books. So the fourth book in the Demonata series is called Beck, and yeah. it's set 1600 years ago in on the west coast of Ireland, where I live, um, in Celtic times. And I was doing an event in Hungary, and a guy put up his hand and said, Mr. Shan, um, am I correct in saying that Beck was set in Ireland 1600 years ago? I said, Yeah, yeah. He said, So why are there rabbits in it? I sort of was a bit thrown at me. I said, What are you talking about? He said, rabbits were not introduced to the British Isles until the Norman conquests 400 years later. So he went to the <laughs> found out he was right. And so now in later editions, there are no mentions of rabbits in Beck. Oh, wow. That's very, that's incredibly niche to know that as yeah. well. And, and Beck, I did a huge amount of research on Beck because it was set in a specific time in the past and a specific place. I did, you know, normally research isn't my thing. But I did a load of research for Beck, but I never even thought about rabbits. I just assumed there'd always been rabbits here. It never even crossed my mind until it got until that was pointed out to me. I think you've answered this question before, but the Wolfman from Cirque de, de Freak, is there uh within the context of the Demonata and Cirque de Freak, is there a link? If not outside of the context of fiction. Was there a link in, oh, I remember I made this Wolfman character. Maybe it would be interesting to, you know, dive into that for the next series. Um, I did think when I was doing the uh, Demon Art series of having it link in with the Saga Shan because I felt Mr. Tiny would have been an interesting addition to the mm. universe of Lord Loss. This was before I'd worked out the series fully and knew where I was going with it. So in the very, very early stages, when I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this Demonata uh, series, I was playing with the idea of maybe having an overlap. Because I wrote the first draft of Lord Loss well before I finished my final edit of Sons of Destiny, the final book of the Saga of Shan. So there could have been that possibility of that, but I just felt it would be too gimmicky. And, yeah. you know, there was no, there were no mentions of, of, of the Demonata 
in my saga of Darren Shan series. There was a scene late in book 12 where these demonic characters are spotted. And some people say, oh, that could be the Demonata. But I just felt, no, it would uh, it, it would be better to keep the, the universes separate. I just felt it, it would be too gimmicky. Um, as for being the link between the Wolfman now, I, I wasn't really thinking about it. Lord mm. Loss began, I wanted to write a werewolf story. It's, it's often forgotten. Lord Loss is, is actually a werewolf book. And that's the main storyline of it is, you know, Grubbs Grady, he loses his family in you know, tragic fashion at the start of the book. He goes to live with his mysterious uncle in a mansion in the countryside, and he begins to suspect that there's a werewolf on the loose. Um, because we've got all the demon stuff in there, that sometimes mm -hmm. gets lost and mixed, which is which I'm glad, because what I wanted to do was write a, demon, uh, a werewolf book which wasn't the ordinary sort of werewolf story. I wanted to do something different with it, and, you know, the same way I did for vampires. I was thinking, what can I do with werewolves that would, you know, not be a normal type of werewolf story? And then I'd written a poem a few years earlier, which is featured at the start of Lord Loss about this character who is eight-armed demon master. And I suddenly thought, if I brought in this demon into a story of werewolves, then that could be, you know, I could make it a story about werewolves without people knowing it was about werewolves. The thing we forget about nowadays is in January 2000, when Certain Freak was first released, nobody knew it was a vampire book. There was no mention of vampires on the cover. It was a big spider on the front cover and on the back cover, there was no mention at all of vampires. I was very strict with my publishers. I said, look, I don't want you to talk about vampires, you know, nothing in the media, nothing in any trailers you're doing, anything like that, any uh, publicity. Let's keep it secret. I mean, people were reading Certain Freak for the first time when Steve gasps and says, Mr. Krebs is a vampire. That caught readers by surprise. No one knew that was coming in the book. Mm. It came out of nowhere. Obviously, it becomes a series about vampires after that. So, but yeah, originally it was a real shock factor. And that's what I wanted with Lord Lost as well. That it's not until you get halfway through the book, you realise, actually, this is a, a, a werewolf story. I remember uh, getting the first one, Lord Lost in the Demon Art series. And that opening a few chapters in where grubs finds his family um that it, it, too. wow it makes your head kind of go like double take like what um did you because uh it's it's such a gory intro did you get any pushback from parents over that no um it, it, by the time lord lost came along i'd established myself you know certain freak was target down had done really really well the movie had been optioned, it sold in different countries. So by the time we came to the publisher of Lord Loss, I was a very different proposition than I was in 1997. If I'd come along with Lord Loss in 1997, yeah, it would have been <laughs> shut down without a doubt, 100%. By the time we came along with it, yeah, I was Darren Shan, the, the, the master of, of horror, they would call me, obviously, for young horror. For, and um, that was how the, the publishers were marketing me. And so they were in a different mindset. They were more open to doing a grislier series. Darren Shan... I don't think actually is a horror series. It's got horror elements, but it's really, you know, it's this fantastical mm. action adventure series more than anything else. But Demon Arter, the focus was much, much more on horror. The, uh, and it, again, there, there was no real pushback from parents, publishers, uh, teachers, librarians, anyone. The only sort of thing I had of it, when I sent the first draft to my editor at Collins, she came back, a lovely lady, um, Julie Russell. She came back to me and she said, no, this is a really good book. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about chapter two. It's very, very violent. Please, could you go away? Could you tone it down? Could you work? I said, no problem. Leave it with me. I'll go back and I'll rewrite it completely. And then I lied. I only did. I made one change, and literally just one change and left the rest of it as it was. In the first draft, 
um, Grubbs Grady walks into his room and he finds his family have been dismembered by demons. And there's a very, very scene everyone remembers. There's a body hanging upside down from the ceiling, his head chopped off, and blood is dripping to the floor from the gaping red O of the neck. Hmm. In the first draft, that was his mother. I changed it to his father, and it was absolutely fine. <laughs> so I often get That's asked, where's the lion in horror? <laughs> Leave the mummies alone. <laughs> you can do anything you want to the dads, but you've got to treat the mummies with respect. <laughs> Going briefly back to Darren Shan, the ending of the saga, the time travel ending, what inspired that? Because time travel, I feel, is something that a lot of authors tend to shy away from because uh, it, it's tricky. It can cause paradoxes within the story if it's not done properly. So what inspired taking that route? I love I love time travel. I absolutely... And it, it's always a paradox with time travel. Um, yeah. One of the things that doesn't really get mentioned a lot with the ending of the saga down shan is with the way it finishes so uh, it's a spoiler so anyone who doesn't want to hear this <laughs> yeah, spoiler might, might want to fast forward by a minute or two here um but darren takes himself out of his timeline but the way the, the inner logic at work in the series is that if you do something important within a timeline history will always replace you so my idea was if mr tiny went back and killed adolf hitler someone mm -hmm. else will take adolf hitler's place because those yes. events as horrific as they were had to happen. They were a huge part of history. You cannot change history. History must happen as it has happened, but the players within it can be replaced. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the saga, Darren replaces himself, which allows him to come away and be me and write the Demonata and all these other books I've written. But of course, the person who replaces him, if it follows, it, it could be a, a boy, it could be a girl. If, it, if he or she follows Darren's same path, at the end of that path, someone else has to replace them and someone else will have to replace them. So uh, over enough timelines, everyone in the world is going to be Darren Shan. The sort of the thing, the, the paradox is, you know, everyone's going to be this bloody Darren Shan person. Every single human alive at some point or another is going to go through what Darren did. But um, it's best not to um, focus too hard on those paradoxes when they drive us mad. But I, I love time travel. The sci-fi book I'm working on at the moment for Darren, as a, one of my Darren Dash books is a, a time travel book um, specifically about time travel. And so I've got a sort of unusual taken it it's, it's it's weird with time travel you think there's only so much you can do with it but there's always ways to do new things with it i'm always astonished by how a really good storyteller can take time travel and spin it in a way that's never been done before so um it's something i've always liked uh, at the end of the demon artist series again there was time travel involved which i was a bit unsure of doing because you know two series two big series in a row and they both end with time travel you know i was worried i was sort of a milking you know the same the same correct same storyline but um it, it, that was just a story. That was just the way it needed to end. Both stories were very, very different to each other, but they both had this time travel element, and it worked very differently in each in both books. But but it needed to be there. So um, I'll always go where a story leads me. I'll mm. always do what a story demands. I have no um, hesitation in not tying myself to a specific genre in working by the rules of a specific genre. You know, I'll call in ideas from all over the place. You know, in the Demonata, um, in book nine, Dark Calling. One of the big influences in that book was Stephen Hawkins's A Brief History of Time. Mm. And I explored a lot of ideas which I got from that book. Um, my uh, novel, one-off novel, The Finn Executioner, I based the structure of that and a lot of the, the vibe of it on The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark mm. Twain. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bring ideas everywhere from children's books, from adult books, from horror books, from you know, strict, you know, normal action books. I'd, I think a, a good writer is like a magpie. And it'll take ideas from all over the place. And about what field you might work in, 
horror or sci-fi, whatever, you should be happy and prepared to pull in ideas from everywhere and to do different things with your genre of choice rather than just repeat what other writers think you should be doing. Have you read Stephen King's, I think this is the title, 112263, where he goes Loved by it. the title? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's I think that's one of his best works. And actually it the time travel element isn't so important. It's actually a it's a love story, really. Yeah. I think it's one of his, his finest works. It was, it was a huge return to form for him. I think he saw, yeah, he's, he's written so many books. You know, it was based on 50 years. You know, you're going to go through patches where, you know, some of the books yeah. just aren't as good as, as the other ones. But that really, I think, lifted his game way, way up again. But yeah, there's, there's so many things you can do with time travel. It can be subtle or it can be you know, full on. But it's something I, I keep coming back to, ironically enough. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever, um, for time travel, have you ever heard of an anime slash visual novel called Steins Gate? No, no, not heard of it. Well, it's Japanese. It started off as a visual novel and they made it into a one season anime. There's a second season, but you don't really need to watch it. Um, but when it comes to time travel, it's done very, very well. I think it's one of the better examples of time travel out there. And it's also a wonderful story. So if you're into time travel and sci-fi, I definitely recommend it's on Netflix. I love it. My favorite little meme from the last few years, I saw it, it's a good few years ago now. It was somebody out, somebody out of a placard out um, campaigning. It says, we want time travel. When do we want it? It's irrelevant. <laughs> That's great. Um, going to go on to some of the questions that I've got from my commenters now. From Echo de Clown, these are all their YouTube usernames. What do you think a writer can slash should do to make a horror story impactful? I never like to... Um, I, well, I don't, I don't like to. I, I can't ever really answer those sorts of questions. Because you just have to do what feels right. Um, there's no, I don't like rules. I don't like, we obviously all follow rules. You know, every writer is following certain rules. But I never like to tie myself to those rules. I don't like to say, well, okay, this is what you've got to do to tell a good horror story or any type of story. You've just got to go with, um, with what feels right. The one thing I would say across any genre, you need to have characters people care about. Yeah. And if, if, re if readers can engage with the characters and get on with them, they'll go a long way with you and you can do all sorts of things. Um, one of my least, not, not least, but one, one, one of my books which didn't work quite as well as we'd all hoped it would, would, would be Zombie. And my first zombie book, uh, the main character, B. Smith, is very unlikable. Um, their father is a, a very, very right-wing racist and B is a teenager who has to basically mirror what the father is saying in order not to be beaten up by the father. But lots of readers found that very, very hard to relate to. As the series develops, your heart goes out to be. You become, mm -hmm. you really get on B's side and B sets out to change the whole course of your life. But in that first book, I wanted to show how there's hope for everyone. No matter what road you found yourself going down in life, we can all stop and change direction and become better people. But by making B so dislikable, it really turned a lot of readers off. They just found her too hard to relate to, too hard to get on with. And a lot of them didn't you know, read past the first book, which was a shame because it was a, you know, it's a really twist-filled series. It's, you know, Bee's one of my favourite characters. And for those who did read on, Bee became one of their favourite characters as well, that one of the books I've written. But, um, yeah, so it, it's important. I, I, I always like morally dubious characters. I love uh, James Ellroy. He's one of my favourite writers, and he writes about, you know, horrible characters, but he makes them fascinating. Um, and it, so it's definitely possible to do that, but it's, it's hard. Lots of people don't want to 
going with, they, they can have horrible books that happen to good characters, but I don't really want to read about horrible characters um, so much. So make, make your characters nice and then put them through hell. That's interesting that uh, zombie maybe didn't do so well and then you mentioned the thin executioner because i remember reading the thin executioner and you know in the beginning the main character sorry i forgot his name but i was very frustrated with him in the beginning because he's essentially a bigot but it's not really his fault it's the culture that he's grown up with and then he has this coming of age story and matures and develops and by the end he's a completely different person and i thought that was wonderfully done yeah i love it as well um the difference why in, in thin executioner it was a one-off book so you mm. saw the change happening over the course of the story. So even if you hate Jebel at the start, um, you were still sort of like, not, most people when they start a book, they will finish it. So even if you hated him, as you went on, you'd come to see, oh, actually, you know, so that, this is why he was that way. And now he's changing. Oh, it's brilliant. I love that he's changing. Um, it, with a zombie, you had to read part, you know, you get to the end of the first book and stop. And that was the sort of problem. If I'd written it as a, a big book, so if I'd taken the story of the first three books and combined them into one big, big novel, I probably would have got away with it. Um, by doing it as well, actually, it's still sold pretty well. It's, it's it's done well. It's just that there isn't that same connection as there was with Darren Shan or Grubbs Grady because B was a more complicated character. Um, but yeah, I I, yeah, I loved it. But yeah, Phil Executioner actually is my favourite book that I've written. If I could only keep one book out of everything I've written, it would be Phil Executioner. It just um, yeah, it just it just really meant a lot to me. Mm. Got a comment from Chessery. I'm desperate to know what he'd do if he had the chance to adapt the Demon Arter series for screen because there's no way it would fit in one movie. In an ideal situation, multiple seasons if needed, a big budget, as much creative control as he needed. Um, so what would you do if you had the chance to adapt it? Because, well, I don't know if you know, but HBO recently did The Last of Us, which is a game and they turned it into... Um, so it seems that going for seasons, we've seen Marvel do that as well, actually. They've gone like Loki or... or one division they've gone for showing stories in in tv shows instead of just doing like a two-hour film what would you do if you had the chance for the demonata yeah i normally don't think about those things because my, my work's been optioned over the years demonata has never been optioned there's never been any real interest from hollywood or anyone else in, in demonata which uh, astonishes and disappoints me because it was something i think is very very visual i think could really work well mm. um certain freak obviously there was the movie but 11, 12 years ago, that's under option again now. There's a team working on trying to turn it into a TV series and take it that way. I think the structure of the Demonata is what puts a lot of people off because it is a very, very, it's, they're very easy books to read, but the structure is fiendish. Um, I look back at the Demonata now and you know, I, I have no idea how I wrote it. It just, I'm astonished that I pulled it, pulled it together. It was, I remember it being a very chaotic time. Um, I, wrote, I wrote Lord Lost and the next five books were written out of order or when they were published. The second book I wrote was Beck. And I wrote what became book five and six, and I wrote book three, and then book two, Demon Freak, was actually the sixth book that I wrote. Um, and that was actually the key to the series of making it all work. Um, I, I have had some, I have thought about it a bit over the years. My mind goes, why, why is no one coming in for De Demon Arter? It's such a, a massive series. I, I don't have a favorite series. Out of the long series, they all, you know, I spent several years of my life working on each of them. They all mean a lot to me. But the Demon Arter is the one I'm proudest of because it's the one where I pushed myself to my limits, I felt, as a writer. I think I really, it's, the ambition of it is absolutely astonishing. You know, if you try and explain the plot to someone, you'll just tie yourself in muddles with about half a minute. Um, I think the structure, you've got three narrators, the storyline moves backwards and forwards in time. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one to sell. I My feeling is if it ever does get taken on, 
Well, there are two ways to go. You could do um, just a standalone movie, either of Lord Loss or Beck or Demon Thief, and see how that goes. If it does well, you could take another one and do it as a standalone movie. Or you could combine them as a TV show and maybe merge the storylines. So maybe you have your first television show is Grubbs Grady, and you see his family be wiped out. Then it fades, and the next 10 minutes are about Colonel Fleck, and it fades, and the next 10 minutes are about Beck, and we get to see that. Similar to what how Game of Thrones was structured. Mm-hmm. In which you had you know these, these segments which built up by show by episode to episode, and then started to come together. So I suspect something like that is the way to go, but um, yeah, that's going to require a screenwriter with a vision to pull that out of the books. There's going to be going to be need, need to be a lot of reworking and extending of you know the kernel storylines if you did it that way. So I, I hope it will get done someday, um, and I hope that that day comes before I die. <laughs> I hate when things come become huge after an author's death. I just think poor old J- poor old J.R.R. Tolkien not getting to see Peter uh, Jackson's Lord of the Rings. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's a shame about the Demonata because I I liked that with each book, new book as they came out. You were you were never sure what you were going to get, you know, because you had Grubbs Grady, Grady, and then the second one you had uh, Colonel, and then you had Beck. I liked that because you you never you never knew. <laughs> I, I, I did too. Loads of readers have. Steve Nato has been a very, very successful series, but it's um, it's not as straightforward as Saga Shan, and that's where I think mm-hmm. would potential adapters they're not quite sure what to do with it or how to how to do it. Hopefully, at some point. So I, I always like to. I always think if it does happen, it's going to be with someone who read the books and who go like Peter Jackson. You know, Peter Jackson read Lord of the Rings when he was a teenager. He got into movies, and then years later, he came to the studio with a vision. So I'm hoping some one of my readers one day comes to the studio with a vision and says, look, this is, um, I've, got, I've, heard, I've read a series called Demon Art when I was young. I think it can work if we do this, this, this of it. But um, it hasn't happened so far. So come on, get a move on, you lot. <laughs> okay, we have a comment from Arissa 11 Arissa. Uh, I'd be interested to know how it was to work with the artist of the manga adaption for Darren Shan. I know the manga's artist put some of his experience at the end of each volume, but I'd love to hear the other side. What was it like to work with him? Oh, very little to do with it. Um, so my books were huge in Japan. As I said, they were mostly about 18 to 30 year old women. And they just, you know, very, very quickly went stellar. In the UK and America, it was a more gradual growth and it was word of mouth. And, you know, I didn't have a bestseller in the UK until Lord Loss. None of the first 12 books in Saga and Shan ever got near the top of the charts. And most of them didn't even chart, even like in the lower, lower regions. But over the like four or five years that it took, word of mouth started to spread and things started to get passed around. And when Lord Loss came along, we put out a hardback book and, you know, we gave it a big, the publishers gave it a big push and, and it went big. But in, in, in Japan, it went massive from the start. And um, so there was this big demand over there to do something more serious. And obviously manga are huge in Japan. And so my publisher came to me and asked me, was I open to the idea of them adapting it? I said, yeah. So they actually, they put it out to tender and they got five or six artists to draw the first chapter of what, of manga or it was something like 20 30 40 pages something like that just a you know, rough sketch but just to give you an idea of how it would work with them and then they sent them to me to choose my favorite out of the artists and the one i chose takahiro arai he was actually very young and his artwork was much rougher than some of the the other art but his storytelling ability just for me came through immediately even though you know it wasn't in english and there was no language in it i could follow the story and it just he had a really interesting way of, of adapting it and I said I love this guy can you do it and luckily we did take him on 
and he, he did an amazing job on it. But once I chose him, I had nothing to do with it, um, with the Japanese version after that, because it was coming out, you know, very, very fast in Japan. Every month there was a, a new segment. What was it even? No, it was monthly. It was shown shown on monthly. And um, so he was working on it with his team, you know, all the time. It was in Japanese. So I had no, I had no real input into it. The only input I had was when it was released in the Western world and translated into English, I went through the translation and tweaked the, the text. So, for instance, in, in, when the translator translated it, he didn't have Mr. Krebsley speaking the right way. He was saying, I'm and isn't and so on. Mm-hmm. So I went through and I tweaked that. And you know, I, I went through, I, I sort of like edited it. I acted like an editor. And I went through and just you know tied it more concretely to the language of the books for English readers. And so I was involved with it in in that point. But in terms of its genesis in Japan, I had nothing to do with it once I, I chose the artist. Okay. I've got a two-parter here. Moonlit Words and Lilies. Some of these people have very interesting names, but my YouTube name is Elise, so I'm not one to talk. Uh, <laughs> with so much horror using jump scares and gore to scare readers, do you have any advice for those seeking to use the Uncanny Valley instead? Are you aware of the Uncanny Valley phenomena which is it's something to do with um there's a few theories as to why this is when humans see something that's trying to mimic the appearance of humans but isn't quite so advanced robots for example it gives you that's uncanny valley it gives you a weird feeling and i think one of the theories behind that is obviously when we were homo sapiens we weren't the only species that looked yeah. human around but we killed off the others like neanderthals or whatever i think we we killed off the other races so there's something instinctual within us to be put off by something that looks human but isn't um how would you go about using that in a story i think they're asking and then they're asking if you have any advice for new just published or preparing to publish writers stuff that you wish you knew at the time we didn't, we didn't kill off the Neanderthals, actually. Um, but no, no one's 100% sure, but the latest feeling is we, we bred with them. We've all got a percentage of Neanderthal in us, except yeah. for people who stayed in Africa who had no intermingling with anyone outside it. Everyone else in the world has it something like 2 or 3% Neanderthal in us. So we actually bred with Neanderthals. So they, they think we didn't actually kill them off. It's just we bred with them and you know, we ended up being the, the dominant mm-hmm. race out, out of the two. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying about the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, seeing, yeah, it is odd. You see things. That's why... People in masks. My my daughter, she loves people in costumes. She's right. We're taking a Disneyland, Euro Disney, in the summer, and she can't wait for that. She says, "When are we going? When are we going?" She you know, she sees someone in the Mickey Mouse outfit. She runs up to them, hugs them. My son was freaked out by them always as a kid. He wouldn't mm. go near anyone in the costume. He just felt that's not human. What what the hell is that thing? And he was. And I think a lot of people have those reactions. Yeah. Um, you you have to find different ways to bring the horror out i think it's you know in movies you know jump scares are obviously much more so than in books well you can do it in books as well in lord lost there was basically a jump scare you know end of chapter one start of chapter two suddenly bang um, but usually in books you, you you approach it differently and you build the horror up and having things happen uh yeah, any form can work um would i what do I do it with? Uh, I'm just trying to think. Have I written anything like that with non-humans? Don't, don't think I have actually. There is. I suppose the closest I've come in. I wrote a, a book un, under my Darren Dash pseudonym called um, Sunburn, in which uh, it's this Bigfoot type character that the the main character runs into in a forest in Bulgaria, and it's sort of semi-human but very very different at the same time. And so that's probably the closest I've come to 
that type of a character so far anyway. Mm. Um, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. Do you have any advice for people preparing to publish, uh, just published, any, anything you wish you knew at the time and so on? Uh, not hugely. I mean, the first thing I always say is if you're going down the, the traditional route, get an agent, definitely. You know, a good agent is worth the weight in gold. They will, you know, fight your battles for you that need to be fought. And, you know, publishing, I've always found a battle. My latest series, uh, Darren Chan series, Archibald Locks, I had to self-publish that because nobody was interested in it. And unfortunately, my agent didn't like it either, or he would have gone to, to fight for me, as he did with Certain Freak, but he didn't really, didn't really click with him either. So I ended up going down the self-publishing route, which is fine. You know, it's interesting as well. But um, yeah, if you, if you want to go down the traditional route, having an agent is absolutely vital. They will fight your battles. They will, you know, go and face the publishers and won't be afraid to look for more, better terms to take your corner. So um, that would be my biggest piece of advice. Uh, in terms of the publishing world, it's, it's, got its, it's got its pros and cons. Um, I had very, very good relationships with my publishers over the years. Um, there were things I liked, there were things I didn't like, there were things they did where I felt they could be doing more. There were other things they did which I would never have thought of. It, it, it's a, it is a union. It's a dance. When you go to the traditional publishing route, you're part of a team. And obviously your book is your baby, but they're publishing lots and lots of different types of books. And you have to accept that there are things they know much better than you and they'll have ideas you won't have. And you have to be a team member. I think it's, it's good to be part of a team. It's good to enjoy it. Uh, if you're lucky enough to have some success, relish it while it's there and uh, ride it as long as you can. But um, yeah, for the most part, they're good people. In the mm. publishing world, yeah, you know, I've had very, very good experiences with them. I've made some very, very good friends among publishers. But yeah, you have to be a team player, and it's you can't get everything your own way, and shouldn't want to get everything your own way. True. Kaylin Elizabeth asks, "How do you properly build suspense in a novel?" Tell you about that in the next podcast. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Simple as that. It's just um, yeah. You just have things build up and you have things... There are things characters can know which the reader can't and there are things the reader can know which the character can't. And having a nice mix of those two things uh, is, is good for making suspense. There are, there are things... I think a lot of the time... Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut was one of my favourite authors. He used to say there should be no real surprises in novels. The reader should be able to know... You, can, you should signpost everything that's coming because readers want to be hitting those things. They want to know from the beginning what's going to happen to, to a character and they like it when they're proved right. Mm. And to an extent, he, he's correct, but I do think it's sometimes it's good to have unexpected things happen as well and to take your readers completely off guard. So in my books, I like to put in a mix of things that readers can fairly, most readers will predict happening, but then also things that they're not going to see coming. So for instance, in Cycle Down Shan, I think everyone knew Steve Leopard was going to re return as a villain mm -hmm. after book one. I think yeah, most readers have finished book one, they thought, oh, yes, Steve's coming back definitely as a villain. But then they don't know he's going to be the Lord of Vampires. That's the big twist mm -hmm. when it comes to book, uh, what was it, book, book eight, <clears throat> book nine, you find out at the end of book nine. And um, sorry, that was a big spoiler for anyone who um, <laughs> you might want to rewind a couple of minutes and wipe your memory. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm going to see one final question from Zigball. Papel, Pabel Ash, Zigbal Pabel Ash, very interesting. How do you write so much and avoid burning out? Can you avoid burnout? I wonder. Yeah, Stephen King, 
has been going for you know well over 50 years now and he's still managed you'll get spells where it might not be crackling along as hotly as you would like but you'll come back to it yeah if you um if you write for fun i'm sort of going for a period now where i'm not writing as much as i used to i'm finding it harder with the two kids around to to get writing time into my day um i'm hoping that's going to change over the next couple of years my son now is eight so he's moving on once my daughter starts school i think i will have more time and hopefully i'll get back into the groove uh i just i always say i write because i love writing and if I wasn't getting paid to write, I would do it for fun. And the proof of that was Archibald Locks. You know, nobody wanted Archibald Locks. It would have been very easy just to put it to one side. But I made myself go on it because I wanted to see where this story went. I wanted, you know, I wrote Archibald Locks to find out what happens to Archie. And um, I, I just, I had to go with it. If I wasn't getting paid to write, I'd be doing it as a hobby for fun. It's always been fun for me. I'm very, I know I'm very, 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 very lucky to be getting paid lots of money to do something that I love doing and would be doing for free. Don't tell the publishers that, but um, yeah, just yeah, I think it is. It at the same time, you know, there are maybe only certain, and there are only a certain number of stories that any of us can tell. And sometimes you might get to a point in your life where you think, yeah, that's it. I've said what I have to say. Mm. I'm putting the pen down now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move along. Um, I like to think if I ever got to that point, I would be able to stop. Um, that's the thing. You know, it's like with footballers who go on you know, a couple of seasons too long, and you know that they they sort of ruin their legacies a bit. But you just you just never know. You know, you could be you could be in a big dip, you could be writing rub, you could spend 20 years, you could have been a big, big author, great books, huge success, spend 20 years writing rubbish, disappointing everyone, sales have dwindled to nothing, everyone's written you off, and yeah, you could be 90 years old and suddenly come up with your best story, the best story of your life. You mm-hmm. just never know. Um, you know, I want my dying words, whenever that comes, to be stop, stop! I've just had an idea. <laughs> That'd be great on a t- on a gravestone. <laughs> Have you ever seen that interaction between uh, Stephen King and George R. R. Martin? They're on a stage together answering questions for the audience. And George R. R. Martin turns to Stephen King and he goes, I've got a question for you. How do you write so damn fast? Because George R. R. Martin obviously infamously hasn't finished uh, Game of Thrones yet. Um, so I guess I guess that's important. Just Just having the love, having some discipline. You want to see where it goes. I never know with each book what the character's going to do. I have an idea what the plot's going to be, but there are so many things I find out through the storytelling process. And I'm just haven't yet stopped being curious about where, where I'm going to go with stories. You know, I like finding these things out and finding out what happens to the characters. And um, yeah, when, if that love ever leads me, I'll be I'll be sad, but I'll just go read other people's books. Eh? <laughs> well, that's all I've got time for for today. Thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed this podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, thanks, I have as well. That, that, I've got to be honest, that time has flown by. I was looking at the watch. I thought about half an hour <laughs> gone. I realised it's been three times that. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, before we leave, is there anything you're anything to say to the audience? You know, watch out for in the future. I mean, you mentioned the Archibald, the new series that you wrote. Where can people find that? Archibald Locks, there are, there were nine short books in total. Um, I combined them into three big volumes, which is the best way to read it, and it's the cheapest way to read it as well. You can get them as ebooks through any online ebook store, or if you want physical copies, I would recommend Amazon or Book Depository. You can order them through your regular bookshop. They won't be in the, in the stores. You can order them through like W. H. Smith or Wartstones, but you're going to pay more. It's going to take longer to get your hands on them. So I would say Amazon or Book Depository. Um, I finished that last summer. The last book came out of that, and the last trilogy came out in the autumn time. 
And um, yeah, my next release will probably be later this year. That science fiction novel I was talking about. If it all works out, I'm still about, I'm about halfway through and still figuring out if it's any good or not. But hopefully it will be, and I'll be publishing that as Darren Dash. Uh, either either self-published it late this year, or if it ends up getting a, a traditional publisher, it might be a bit further down the line. But I suspect it's going to be self-published because uh, it's a sure. quirky, weird little one. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Are there any social medias that people can follow you on? Uh, are you on Twitter? I am. So um, I have a website, darrenshan.com, although that's in sore need of updating. Um, I'll get around to it at some point over the next year or two. Um, I'm on Twitter um, and I'm on Facebook. I think on Facebook it's Darren Shan Verified. And I think on Twitter it might be Darren Shan Official. I'm not sure. If you go on my website, on the homepage, there's a link for Twitter and Facebook. Um, that's about it. I haven't really done anything else like Insta or any of those other things. So I find it hard enough keeping up with those two. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for my audience members, thank you guys so much for watching. Remember to like, comment and subscribe. Remember to follow us on Spotify and iTunes. It's been a few months since I've said that. So I've forgotten, but the muscle memory of saying it comes back. Um, yes, give us a like. Follow Darren on his socials and his website. And I will see you guys very soon. Very soon. Bye. <laughs>